So in neurodegenerative disease, myocarditis, Bell's palsy, liver disease, impaired adaptive immunity, impaired DNA damage response, etc. So it's possible, in fact, it's looking likely that the vaccine might suppress the immune system. This fact, the authors concluded, will quote, have a wide range of consequences, not the least of which include the reactivation of latent viral infections and the reduced ability to effectively combat future infections, end quote. Now, again, we sincerely hope that's not true. But it's not just the conclusion of one scientific journal. The Lancet, maybe the most famous scientific journal in the world, released similar findings in February. The Lancet's piece was entitled, quote, risk of infection, hospitalization, and death up to nine months after a second dose of COVID-19 vaccine. A physician called Kenji Yamamoto made this observation about the data from The Lancet. He wrote this in a letter to the Journal of Virology, and we're quoting, the study showed that immune function among vaccinated individuals eight months after the administration of two doses of COVID-19 vaccine was lower than that among the unvaccinated individuals. Ah, now your first response, if you're a humane person, to a line like that has got to be deep sympathy because people were misled, they were forced, they were forced. Medical ethics thrown out the window. People were forced to take medicine they didn't want, and some of them may have been hurt by it. And you don't have to take this man's word for it. Pull up the Lancet study yourself. You won't find anything of the text of the article saying what Kenji Yamamoto said, which is weird. Why would the Lancet want to hide a major finding like that? We can't say. But if you look at table three in the piece, here's what you'll find buried in the data. Among people around the age of 80 who have been double vaccinated, that would include people like Joe Biden, the per capita rate of medical incidences, including hospitalizations or death, is nearly twice as high as the rate of serious incidents for the unvaccinated. This is 180 days after vaccination. What is that? And why is no one interested? Warning, the root, the root, the roots on fire. You're about to experience the most high octane pedal to the metal controversial show of your life. Please buckle up and hold on tightly. This station is not responsible for injuries. This is Wayne Allen Root, raw and unfiltered with America's favorite conservative rock star, direct from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. What time is it? It's time for war. Here's your host, 100% raw truth, 100% American made, the warrior, Wayne Allen Root. All right, Wayne Allen Root, the root, the root, the root's on fire. Strange, strange time to be a, a talk show host, a conservative talk show host. Never seen anything like it in my entire life. The countries have been out of republic. It's horrible. It's awful. So uh, I wrote a commentary, and I will open the, uh, the uh, I was going to say the 4 o'clock hour, but in Vegas, 4 o'clock hour. On the East Coast, it's the 7 o'clock hour. So hour number 2, 7 p.m. East Coast time, uh, which is my Lindell hour. I will open with that commentary, and the title is, very provocative title, No, Trump is not Jesus Christ, but Democrats sure are persecuting him like Jesus Christ. And here's why. And I tell you why he's being persecuted. But I'll give you the, I'll give you the skinny on it. I'll give you the short, the uh, Cliff Notes version. 
that Trump is not Jesus Christ. He's not a God. I get that. I've never said he was. I never will say he is. I'm well aware. But Democrats don't seem to know it. They're the ones that treat him like Jesus. They're the ones who persecute him like Jesus because he threatens the government. He threatens the deep state. He threatens the gravy train. He threatens their lock on power and control. And so, and, and like, like Jesus, by the way, Trump fights for the little guy and the little gal against all the big shots in power. And they can't stand that. He makes them look bad. He humiliates them. And also, like Jesus, the more they persecute him, the more they create a martyr. And also, like Jesus, the Democrats, who are his persecutors, are so clueless and ignorant that they're arresting and persecuting an innocent man during the same week that Jesus Christ was arrested, tried with false witness, and crucified by an evil, tyrannical government. Does that sound familiar to anybody? So why is this happening? The parallels are astounding. Why is this happening? Well, first, Democrats are bullies. You know, I grew up on the mean streets of New York, and all I did was face down bullies. These are classic bullies, vicious communist thugs. They want no threats to their power, no threats to their propaganda, and no dissent. And this isn't only about Trump. The real reason for doing this is to send a message to you and me. If we can destroy Trump, think what we could do to you. Think how bad it will be. Think how much money your entire life savings will be spent on legal fees. Think how easy it will be if we could do this to Trump. Think what we could do to you. That's called bullying. That's called intimidation. And that is the hallmark of communism. Second, my New York street fighter instinct tells me Democrats, government, the deep state, and the media are all scared to death of Trump. It's the opposite of what they say. They say he's a loser, he's a bad guy, he's unpopular, he has no chance of winning. If they really believe that, if he's such a surefire loser, why not just leave him alone? Let him talk, let him run, let him win the nomination. Why are they so desperate to stop him at all costs? Because they know that average Americans see him as their hero. They know he's won over the people. Democrat and government Government bullies know he's the only chance we've got to beat them against rigged elections in 2024. They know that if Trump wins, the jig is up and he's going to blow up their gravy train. He's going to kill the goose that laid their golden egg. They got to stop Trump now, and then they're assured of victory in 2024, and then they'll stay in power forever. It's over. One party rule that's communism. And third, arresting Trump is a weapon of mass distraction, a WND, a WMD. Weapon of mass distraction. Which is two years of Biden in the White House. He has destroyed and devastated our country. His failures are everywhere. And Democrats want to distract you. So instead of looking at Social Security, which they just announced is bankrupt, and they're going to have to start making cuts in your Social Security payments, instead of noticing massive inflation and mass layoffs and a crumbly economy and bank failures and a wide open border with millions coming in and illegal alien invasion and crime and homelessness everywhere and tons of COVID vaccine deaths and transgender ideology poisoning your children in failing schools and on the verge of World War III with China, Russia, and Iran. Now all you see is the Trump trial, the Trump trial, the Trump trial, 24 hours a day. All of this happening over Easter week. How fitting. How fitting. Talk about needing a national divorce. We got to get away from these people and get away from them fast. Because they're suicide bombers. They're going to take our country down and take all of us with them if we don't get the hell away from them.
and it was only in the past five years when all this evidence would emerge. And I'd be like, well, that doesn't, that's not true. It doesn't seem true to me. Like, I don't know what the truth is, but I can tell when someone's lying. It's my one gift. And I would see these people lying and I'd be like, why are they lying? Like, I know they're lying, but why? And so I really came to this like at the age of 50. Like, that's very late. It's like I never for a second thought you have UFOs. What changed your attitude at 50? The evidence. Which is what? Well, we, we, well, oh my gosh. Our Pentagon was required by the last defense authorization bill to like produce some of their files on UFOs. And it turns out they have known about this since the end of the Second World War, which ended in 1945. Been a huge increase during that war, during the war as well. Huge increase in UFO sightings, in UFO crashes. And it turns out the federal government has been tracking this for 80 years and lying about it. So why? Well, that's a great question. I can't answer it theories, but I don't know. But here's what I learned. The first question is, is this real? Or am I just being a crazy person who's spending too much time on the internet? Well, this summer, we got a call. We didn't reach out. This person called us. Lexi, who's standing right there, who's a genius, one of our producers, gets this call from this guy who's a tenured Stanford medical school professor. And he wants to come on the show. Now, this guy has a couple patents. And so he's rich. And he's got tenure at one of the most prestigious schools in the world. So like, He's not a flake. He comes on and he's like, 11 years ago, the U.S. government reached out to me because I'm an expert on head injuries, on brain injuries, traumatic brain injuries. As a physician, they had all these court cases from families of U.S. servicemen, over 100, who'd been killed by UFOs. The Department of Defense was refusing to give them death benefits or medical benefits. And he's like, so they're in the courts. And I was like, there are over 100 servicemen killed by UFOs? Like, what? He's like, yeah. And there are court cases about it. I'm like, why isn't this on the front page of the New York Times? I don't know. But he goes, I'm involved in it. I'm the, you know, I'm one of the researchers. I'm the expert witness in these cases. Holy shit. What does that mean? And he's like, for example, UFOs appear to be attracted for whatever reason to nuclear energy. So at nuclear missile bases in the upper Midwest, for example, nuclear powered aircraft carriers, nuclear powered submarines are all getting buzzed by these objects, including underwater. And in a number of cases, these things have landed on military bases, including famously in Germany, in West Germany in the 70s. And servicemen have approached them. Like, what is this thing? There's this like giant glowing thing on the base. And they approach and they get traumatic brain injury. Like they are rendered. Like, yeah, yeah. They get brain damage or they're killed. And he studied their brains. And they have, this is all totally real. This is not, this is the Department of Defense, dude. And they've all had this damage from some kind of powerful energy that we cannot identify. So then this guy's like, wow, he's just a scientist. He never believed in UFOs. He's like, this is real. I cannot believe this is real. This is like crazy. He should do research on it. He's still at Stanford. And it turns out that actually, yes, these things have been shot down and crashed and the US government has the wreckage and it's being held by defense contractors, Raytheon, Lockheed, which are big independent companies, but that work for the US government. They're really part of the Department of Defense, but they're separate. So you can't, their sunshine laws don't apply to them. You can't actually get information from them. It's a very tricky way to hide information. And they have the wreckage from these crafts. Hmm. And I'm like, really? Are we positive these aren't like advanced Russian or Chinese? No, of course not. Is it more like the government or whatever is just this good at hiding it or people just don't care? Well, I think it's a combination of both. I think it's too big for people to metabolize. Like if Prince Harry says something stupid, everyone's like, I can't believe Prince Harry. Because, like, that's manageable. You can, like, oh, this douchey fake prince with his stupid wife from Santa Monica. Like, I get that. But the idea that we're not alone in the universe and we're getting buzzed by these objects whose behavior defies physics, like, that just explodes too many categories in my head. I just can't deal with it. And I think that's part of it. But I'll tell you this. The most interesting, from my perspective, 
it's, I don't know if it's a consensus, but a lot of people, serious people, not crazy people who study this stuff, U.S. government employees, seem to believe that these objects are coming from under the oceans. So the conventional view is they're coming in from outer space. There's not actually a lot of, you know, something enters the atmosphere, we can see it on yeah, satellite, yeah. and there's not any evidence of that, actually. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's happening, but we don't know that it is. There's a lot of evidence these things are coming out of the ocean, including videotape, of these objects coming out of the water at high speed, or even more amazing, descending at Mach 3 into the water. And then, of course, we have a huge submarine what fleet. What the fuck? What the fuck? Then we have a huge submarine fleet, American, but also Chinese and Russian, underwater with pretty sensitive measurement devices, sonar, etc. And they have recorded these objects doing hundreds of knots underwater. So like, let's just stop there. Wait, what's knots? Uh, it's 1.1 miles per hour. It's oh. a way that we measure objects in the water. Oh. It's 1.1 miles. It's a little more than mile, mile per hour. And a, and a mile is a measurement that we use in the United States. Right. Distinct from a kilometer, which I think is right. Yeah. common in Canada. But anyway, <laughs> these things are moving at impossibly high speeds. So just like, let's just apply common sense for one second. If I take a 45 ACP, you know, a, a 45 caliber handgun and fire it at you, underwater in, say, a swimming pool, 50 feet away, you can catch the bullet because the resistance is so strong from the water that objects can't move that fast underwater. We know that. But they are. And they're moving without any visible means of propulsion. So no wake, no bubbles. Where where have we, like, tracked that All over speed. the world. thrilled to have him uh, on a very important day, and we'll get to why in a second. But Peter Schiff is the uh, chief economist and global strategist at uh, Euro Pacific Assets. He's the founder of ShiftGold.com. He's a friend of the show, and we're always happy to uh, get his opinion and thoughts when it comes to uh, what a market, Peter Schiff, right now, and what a uh, mess that we find ourselves in when it comes to the banking uh, situation currently. On the day, in fact, as we've been mentioning, where we get SVB and we get Signature Bank both making their debuts on the OTC market. Um, Let's dive right into this. First of all, I want to give people a little bit more of an explanation as to why we're in the position that we're in when it comes to these regional banks from the standpoint that I think a lot of people are a little bit confused when it comes to deposits with these banks, not necessarily being assets, but more liabilities. Give us your take on from a whole, why these regional banks specifically are in the mess that we find ourselves in? Well, it's, it's not an accident. It was a very obvious uh, uh, result of Fed policy combined with the moral hazards inherent in government-insured bank accounts. But, you know, we've had government-insured bank accounts for a long time, and it has done damage. It's one of the reasons that the system is so unsound. But the reason that we're going to have so many failures is because the Fed kept interest rates so low for so long. I mean, that, that's what enabled Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and just about every other bank to load up on overpriced U.S. Treasuries and, and mortgages. Now, I was talking to one of the guys at Europe Pacific Asset Management this morning who happened to lock in a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage at 2.88%, which is, I think, the lowest one I know about. 
But uh, imagine how much money the bank that owns that mortgage will lose over the next 30 years. They're collecting 2.88 percent on, on the mortgage. And, you know, the, it, it, the Fed funds rate is 5 percent. So it, it, it's a tremendous loss. But Silicon Valley Bank, you know, is just a victim of that policy. They were just a weak link in the chain because they uh, had a rush of uh, depositors who wanted their money. <laughs> and, and so that caused Silicon Valley Bank to have to sell some of the overpriced treasuries and mortgages that it bought. And in so doing, it lost billions of dollars and, and, and blew up its capital. And that, you know, they tried to raise capital in the market, but nobody wanted to buy. And so the bank became insolvent. But it was insolvent for a while. It just didn't recognize that because it didn't have to mark to market uh, its, its, its bonds. But that's true with all the other banks. Nobody is marking this stuff to market. Everybody is just, you know, putting it in their hold to maturity bucket and they don't have to take a haircut. They don't have to market to market. And so they can pretend that 60 cents worth of bonds is worth a dollar. But if, if they had to stop pretending, then they would all be insolvent. And when you're talking about bank deposits, a bank deposit is your asset as the customer of the bank, but it's a liability from the bank's perspective. It owes you that money. When you give your money to a bank, it becomes the bank's money. And you are now a creditor of that bank. And what they owe you is what you deposited. But if they take the money that you loaned them and they blow it on overpriced mortgage-backed securities, uh, then, then they can't pay you back. Now, of course, what happens now is the U.S. government steps in and says, we'll pay you back. You know, well, the U.S. government doesn't have any money. Where does the U.S. government get the money? Well, from the Fed. The Fed just prints the money. That's where the FDIC gets its money, uh, which is why everybody is going to lose. You know, these politicians are saying that the banking system is sound. Don't worry about your money. You better worry even more about your money. Because the only way the government can make sure your bank doesn't fail is by destroying the value of the money that you have on deposit. It's inflation that is going to wipe out the value of everybody's bank account. And it's the, the investment side of this as well that I want to make sure everybody has an understanding of in the sense that if these banks have these uh, funds tied up in 20, 30-year investments at 2 2.5%, as you mentioned, when they start to have to pay 4 4.5%, 5%, you know, it becomes a, a lose lose situation. I want to talk about this being a banking crisis. You had a great tweet that I saw going back to uh, late yesterday in the sense that all sequels tend to be worse than the originals. Tell us why this is going to be worse than the original banking crisis. Yeah. And first of all, you know, nobody wants to refer to it as a financial crisis. Everybody is talking about a banking crisis. Why don't they just call it what it is, a financial crisis? Because they don't want to evoke any memories of the 08 crisis. They don't want to invite comparison to that crisis. So they're trying to label it something different. No, this is a financial crisis. The 2008 financial crisis was also a banking crisis. If, unless people forget, it was the banks that were failing. Yes, they were failing because of bad mortgages, but that was the debt that was failing. And so that's what's happening now. Banks are failing because of bad debt. Right. They, they made loans and they're not going to they're not good anymore. And, and so this is a financial crisis. This is the cusp of the crisis. Uh, it's going to get much, much worse. If you're going to try to dismiss this as well, it's just a couple of banks. It's just a Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank or uh, the other one that failed. Um, that's like 
you know, when the subprime uh, uh, blow up first happened, nobody wanted to admit that it was a mortgage crisis. They just said, oh, it's just contained to these handful of subprime mortgages. Don't worry about it. Right. Nothing to see here. It's no big deal. It'll just blow right over. Right. That was the initial reaction in the mainstream media at the Federal Reserve. It was nothing to worry about. That's exactly what they're saying now. This is nothing. It's no big deal. Right. It is a big deal. It's not nothing. And I've been warning about it, just like I was warning about the subprime problems years before they blew up. I was warning about this precise problem at banks years ago. This is not, you know, something that just came out of left field. This is not some kind of black swan that we couldn't have anticipated. This is your garden variety white swan. They're all over the place. This is what swans look like. You know, if you keep interest rates at zero for 10 years, this is what you get. It's not a surprise. And it hasn't been limited to, you know, just these regional banks are smaller. We we heard about Credit Suisse last week. We hear about Deutsche Bank even in the head, uh, headlines uh, this week. How widespread in your mind is this going to get as far as the big banks, the too big to fail banks are concerned? Well, those banks are insolvent, too. It's just that they're too big to fail, so we won't let them. But that just means we have to print a lot of money to prevent them from failing. But look, you know, people aren't running on those banks right now. I mean, perversely, what the U.S. government did by fully insuring and bailing out all the depositors of Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank, but then coming out and saying, hey, you know, we bailed out all the depositors of these banks because they were big and we were worried about the ramifications for the economy of allowing the customers to lose money. But that doesn't mean that all accounts are insured unlimited amounts at any bank. We basically created a run on small banks because anybody with a large deposit at a small bank would be an idiot to leave the money there. Right. Because why? You know, you you might as well pull it out and put it into one of these large, too big to fail banks because then at least you're not going to lose money if it fails, because they won't let it. But if you leave your money at one of these small banks and it fails, you may be out of luck, right? Because the government may not deem that bank to be important enough to insure everybody's account. So why would you want to be there? For what reason? What is your upside? You're not, it's like you're getting a lot of interest to leave your money at a small bank. No, just pull it out. And, and so now the government is going to create a run on these small banks. And right. that's going to create a huge problem. I want to go back to last week and talk a little bit about the Fed here. And I want your opinion on why maybe a quarter point hike was possibly the worst thing that could have happened in the sense that if they were going to do something, why not do 50 either way and give us some sort of director or direction instead of take this kind of middle road, really no opinion type of move? Well, look, the Fed was more concerned about saving face. I mean, they had talked about raising rates, and so they wanted to uh, fulfill that, uh, that, that, that commitment because they didn't want to admit that they made a mistake when they talked about raising rates. So they raised them. Um, but, you know, I think from their uh, PR perspective, they're going to regret that hike because the next move might be a cut, in which case they look pretty foolish having hiked. It, it may have been better had they just stayed them stayed, you know, flat. But they did telegraph now that, you know, it could kind of go either direction next time. So they're no longer kind of locked into we're going to hike. 
But it doesn't even matter whether they hiked 50 or 25. It's not enough. It's not going to um, put out the inflation fire because the rates are still below the rate of inflation. So a negative interest rate is fueling the inflation fire. It's not putting it out. And paradoxically, the rate hikes themselves, even though they're not high enough to stop the inflation, they are high enough to make it worse. (laughs) Because what happens is interest rates are prices. It's the price of money. The price of money is going up. That factors into the CPI. It doesn't factor into the CPI as interest, but it factors into it in, in prices of everything else. Because if I'm a business, I have various costs. I have labor costs. I have raw material costs. I have rent. I have other things that I have to pay. But I also have interest that I have to pay. And if my interest rates go up, that's just higher costs. What do businesses do with their costs? They pass them on to their customers and higher interest rates are no different than higher wages or higher raw material costs. So it's going to be passed on. Um, Housing is directly impacted by interest rates, not the price of the house, but the cost of owning it, the cost of buying it. Uh, The higher the rate, the more expensive home ownership becomes. That also pushes up rents as mortgage interest rates are rising making it harder for people to afford to buy, that makes it easier for landlords to jack up the rent because you don't have the alternative of buying. So everything the Fed is doing is actually pushing up consumer prices. So it's, it's not going to work. The rate hikes are going to backfire. Not that they shouldn't be hiking rates. They actually need to hike them even more because what they have to do is change consumer behavior. They have to change spending and consumption. People need to spend less and save more, but that's not what they're doing. They're saving less and spending more. The savings rate is at a record low. Consumer credit card debt's at a record high. So the Fed is not accomplishing anything. And more significantly, the government continues to spend more money. The deficits are going up. And part of that is being fueled by the higher interest rates. The more the Fed hikes rates, the bigger the deficits get because the government has to pay higher interest. Where does the government get that money? Ultimately from the Fed. The Fed prints it. So because the Fed fights inflation by raising rates, it has to create more inflation to monetize larger deficits. That's one of the reasons we've already returned to quantitative easing. Quantitative tightening is a thing of the past. We're back to quantitative easing. So inflation is going to take off. I want to get your thoughts here um, before we move on to I want uh, we'll talk about uh, quantitative easing here a little bit more. But I want to get your thoughts here first before we do on where we're going as far as this inflation is concerned. When last we spoke, Peter, you mentioned the fact that we needed to get interest rates to a point where they, they were higher than where inflation was. At that point, it was eight, nine, nine and a half percent. Seemed like a dream. Last print, we get, you know, five and a half, six percent, regardless of or whenever you want to look at it. Do we see a six? Do we see a six and a quarter? Do we see a six and a half percent? print as far as the Fed is concerned? And if so, would that be enough? Well, no, because inflation, the way they measure it now is is six. But I think that's the trough. I think it's headed higher. So by the time we got to six, I think inflation would be back at eight or nine or maybe maybe higher than that. So I don't think it's going to work. But also, I think that we're going to peak out here. I think the Fed is going to be on hold for the next few meetings. I don't expect another hike but I expect the inflation rate to move up. So the Fed is going to be falling further behind the curve when it comes to getting 
know, real race positive as it, you know, pauses uh, to kind of assess the, the situation uh, in, the, you know, with global you know, financial stability in the banks, inflation is going to get worse, especially if we get a big drop in the dollar, which I think is going to happen. I think the dollar is kind of teetering on the edge of a cliff and it's going to fall off. At the same time, I think gold is poised for a major move up. And so that would be the mirror image of what's going to happen to the dollar. And you're seeing that right now, kind of, I think the dollar, it's a little bit of a lull before the storm, before it, 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 it implodes, and the opposite with gold. It's, it's about to explode. And I, want, I wanted to ask you about that uh, in the sense that gold at its highs this year up about 10% uh, around that 2000 mark again. If someone sitting here today or watching this show today, for example, has never purchased gold, has never dipped their toes into that market, what do you say to someone like that right now to help them kind of get over that hurdle and say this is where we need to be putting our money to work? Well, you know, gold is just an alternative form of savings if you have money that you don't want to put to work. That's that's where you put your gold money, right? Money you want to keep it safe and you want to store it, but you don't want to see its value eroded by inflation. But, you know, you're, you guys are trading. I, you know, earlier you talked about, uh, you know, AMC, you know, I mean, there you're playing a game of musical chairs, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, the music's going to stop and the stock's going to zero. So you can make money trading it before it goes to zero, but just don't get stuck with it when it's at zero. Um, but if you want to make money in gold stocks where you don't have to worry, I mean, in stocks without having to worry about getting out before the bottom drops out, look at the gold stocks. Because I think these stocks, especially some of the smaller, the junior miners, these are the 10 baggers, the, the 50 baggers, the 100 baggers uh, of the next you know, decade. I mean, so I think that's where the big money is going to be made. And it is still very early. We, we haven't seen any of the real money moving into this sector yet. Uh, but once it starts, it's going to feed on itself. And I think you're going to see some spectacular gains. Uh, more to come, uh, no doubt, in uh, not only the banking sector, but uh, from the Fed as well. Peter Schiff is uh, chief economist and global strategist at Europac.com, founder of ShiftGold.com. Uh, a pleasure as always, uh, Peter, to get your opinion and get your thoughts on this. We appreciate you doing this uh, once again this afternoon. Oh. Thanks for having me on. Right now, many people who are below the age of 30 here in America are under this impression that the world is going to end in just a few short years. And the reason that they have this impression is not a mystery. For instance, if you happen to be in New York City and you take a casual stroll down Union Square, you'll come across a massive doomsday clock, which is quite literally counting down second by second the time that we have left before the supposed effects of global warming become irreversible. That clock, by the way, was set up right around the same time that several lawmakers began to float the idea publicly that we only have 12 years left before the world ends. Here's, for instance, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speaking about this very issue back in the year 2019. Millennials and people and, you know, Gen Z and all these folks that come after us are looking up and we're like, 
the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. And your biggest issue is your your biggest issue is how are we going to pay for it? And wouldn't you know it, just a few short months after she made that statement, the clock in Union Square, which used to just be a normal clock, was changed to instead be a doomsday clock. Now, whether the countdown is actually true or not, you can make up your own mind. The YouTube fact checkers definitely think it's true, given the fact that almost under any video that mentions climate change, they add their official stance as a disclaimer. However, setting that aside, there is something else that I believe is worth highlighting. The fact that very often, it's exactly these types of bold predictions about specific dates when something should happen, but winds up not coming true, which has pretty much undermined the credibility of so-called climate experts, at least in the eyes of most of the public. And so while the doomsday clock over in Union Square continues to tick, tick, tick away, let's take a short journey through time and look at the 33 climate predictions, which turned out to be wrong. By the way, if you appreciate content like this, I do hope you take a super quick moment to smash those like and subscribe buttons, which quite literally forces the YouTube algorithm to share this video out to ever more people. Now, let's begin our journey in October of 1958. That was when the New York Times published an article in which they wrote this, quote, some scientists estimate that the polar ice pack is 40% thinner and 12% less in area than it was a half century ago, and that even within the lifetime of our children, the Arctic Ocean may open, enabling ships to sail over the North Pole. At the time, the article mentioned, the Arctic ice sheet was about seven feet thick, which was again in 1958. And today, when we look at today's data, it's still about seven feet thick. Then we can fast forward to November of 1967, and here's what the Salt Lake City Tribune reported on the issue of the coming famine. Quote, it is already too late for the world to avoid a long period of famine. Now, this article was citing the work of Mr. Paul Ehrlich, who was a Stanford University biologist, and his prediction was that by the year 1975, there will be global famines due to overpopulation. According to this report, he went so far as to propose lacing both the food supply as well as the water drinking supplies here in America with sterilization chemicals in order to cut down on the growing population. And by the way, this worry of too many people was on top of another worry at this particular time, the coming ice age. For instance, in April of 1970, here is what the Boston Globe reported, quote, scientists predict a new ice age by the 21st century. Citing a pollution expert named James Lodge, the Boston Globe continued by writing this, quote, air pollution may obliterate the sun and cause a new ice age in the first third of the new century. And these predictions of a coming ice age just continued to roll on. In July of 1971, a report in the Washington Post, this time citing a NASA scientist, it wrote this, quote, the world could be as little as 50 or 60 years away from a disastrous new ice age. Which is funny, given the fact that 50 years from 1971 is pretty much exactly today. Then, in December of 1972, you had two geologists from Brown University who wrote a highly publicized letter to President Nixon, saying that, quote, a conference attended by 42 top American and European investigators concluded a global deterioration of climate by order of magnitude larger than any hitherto experienced by civilized mankind is a very real possibility and indeed may be due very soon. The present rate of cooling seems fast enough to bring glacial temperatures in about a century, if continuing at the present pace. Then you fast forward about a year and a half to January of 1974, and here was what was written in the Guardian newspaper. Quote, space satellites show new ice age coming fast. Then five months later in June of 1974, a story in Time magazine, well, they, it asked a very similar question. Quote, another ice age? Telltale signs are everywhere. 
from the unexpected persistence and thickness of pack ice in the waters around Iceland to the southward migration of a warmth-loving creature like the armadillo from the Midwest. And this trend of predicting a coming ice age continued for the next four years. For instance, in January of 1978, here is what was written in the New York Times, quote, An international team of specialists has concluded from eight indexes of climate that there is no end in sight to the cooling trend of the last 30 years, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. However, it appears that an end to the trend was in sight, because just a year later, that very same newspaper, meaning the New York Times, was reporting the exact opposite. Here's one of their stories from February of 1979, which is again a year from the previous one we just read. Quote, There is a real possibility that some people now in their infancy will live to a time when the ice at the North Pole will have melted, a change that would cause swift and perhaps catastrophic changes in climate. Then, three years later, in May of 1982, the New York Times even gave a potential date for this coming collapse. In a story where they were citing the executive director of the United Nations Environmental Program, here's what they wrote. Quote, if the world didn't change course, it would face an environmental catastrophe which will witness devastation as complete, as irreversible as any nuclear holocaust by the year 2000. There were other predictions which came and went as well. For instance, in September of 1988, there was a report in AFP which said that the island nation of the Maldives was at risk of becoming completely covered by a quote, gradual rise in average sea level in 30 years and that the end of the Maldives and its people could come sooner if drinking water supplies dry up by 1992, as predicted. And just for your reference, the Maldives are still not underwater, and instead, they're actually thriving and developing. Just last week, there was, in fact, a $148 million contract that was issued to build 120 new luxurious beachfront villas over in the Maldives, an island that, according to this article at least, should be underwater by now. Regardless, these predictions just didn't stop. In June of 1989, which, by the way, is the same month as the Tiananmen Square massacre, the San Jose Mercury News, they reported this, quote, A senior environmental official at the United Nations, Noel Brown, says entire nations could be wiped off the face of the earth by rising sea levels if global warming is now reversed by the year 2000. Then we fast forward to the year 2000, and even though many of these earlier predictions didn't quite pan out, well, they were replaced by new predictions. For instance, in March of 2000, here was what an article in The Independent said about specifically the UK, quote, snowfalls are now just a thing of the past. Children just aren't going to know what snow is. Within a few years, winter snowfall would become a very rare and exciting event. For your reference, it still snows in the UK pretty much every winter, especially in the middle and northern part of the country. Regardless, let's fast forward another year to December of 2001, and here is what a story from the Albuquerque Journal said, quote, The changes in climate could potentially extirpate the sugar maple industry in New England within 20 years, according to George Hurt, co-author of a 2001 global warming report commissioned by the U.S. Congress. For your reference, 22 years after that report, and New England still produces plenty of maple syrup to this day. Then we fast forward another three years to February of 2004, where a story within the Guardian newspaper exposed, quote, a secret Pentagon report that predicted climate change will lead to nuclear war, major European cities will sink into the ocean, and Britain would descend into Siberian climate by the year 2020. All right, just to pause here for a super quick moment, I wanted to mention that the sponsor of today's episode is a super cool company called Secure. And they're a cool company for people that actually care about their privacy. Because listen, if you don't think that these giant tech conglomerates and all these different alphabet agencies within the US government are spying on your messages, 
well, then frankly, you are not paying enough attention to the news. However, all that can be in the past because with Secure, they have awesome proprietary technology that has all your messages and all your emails actually go through Switzerland as they're making their way back and forth between you and your recipient. And so let's say you're here in America and the person you're messaging is over in Canada, Mexico, or anywhere else in the world. Well, it doesn't matter because all your messages are actually going through Switzerland back and forth through from one to another, meaning that they're not subject to the Cloud Act and they are only subject to Swiss laws, which are some of the safest in the entire world. Their technology is awesome, it's proprietary, and they're a company that actually cares about your freedom. They care about getting the facts out, which is why they sponsor a company like ours. And best of all, they are offering a 25% off deal for our viewers, for the viewers of Facts Matter. So head on over to secure.com and use promo code ROMAN to get 25% off. And the rates are not even that expensive to start with. It's only $5 for the messenger and $10 for the email and messenger combo. And they even offer a seven day free trial. So again, head on over to secure.com, use promo code ROMAN, save some money and support an awesome sponsor. And as we mentioned earlier, although it does still snow in Britain, by the year 2020, it was nothing like the climate of Siberia. Regardless, we fast forward another two years, and in January of 2006, the Associated Press, while paraphrasing Al Gore, they wrote this, quote, unless drastic measures to reduce greenhouse gases are taken within the next 10 years, the world will reach a point of no return. Then the following year, in November of 2007, the New York Times quoted the head of the United Nations Climate Panel, who said this, quote, this year was the defining moment of the climate change fight. If there is no action before 2012, that's too late. In that same month, Canada's CanWest News Service, while paraphrasing another polar researcher, they wrote this, quote, The Arctic Ocean could be free of ice in the summer, as soon as 2010 or 2015, something that hasn't happened in more than a million years. And this Arctic Ocean without ice prediction began to gain traction. For instance, the next month, in December of 2007, here was a story in the Associated Press citing a NASA scientist, quote, Arctic sea ice gone in summer within five years? At this rate, the Arctic Ocean could be nearly ice-free at the end of summer by 2012. In that same month, by the way, the BBC, they had a slightly different prediction. Citing another climate expert, here's what the BBC wrote, quote, Arctic summers ice-free by 2013? Our prediction of 2013 for the removal of ice in the summer is not accounting for the last two minima in 2005 and 2007. So given that fact, you can argue that maybe our projection of 2013 is already too conservative. Then a few months later, in March of 2008, you had Xinhua, which is China's official propaganda mouthpiece, citing a Norwegian official who wrote this, quote, if Norway's average temperature this year equals that in 2007, the ice cap in the Arctic will all melt away, which is highly possible judging from current conditions. For your reference, Norway's average temperature did actually slightly increase from the year 2007 to the year 2008, but the ice did not melt. Regardless, a month later, in April of 2008, there was a report in New Scientist magazine, which was citing the director of the National Snow and Ice Data Center, and they wrote this, quote, The North Pole could be ice-free in 2008. There is this thin first-year ice even at the North Pole at the moment. That raises the specter, the possibility, that you could become ice-free at the North Pole this year. And these ice predictions just kept piling on. For instance, in June of 2008, you had the National Geographic News, it's a news outlet, citing an environmental scientist writing this, quote, we're actually projecting this year that the North Pole may be free of ice for the first time in history. In that same month, the Associated Press, paraphrasing a NASA scientist this time, wrote this, quote, 
in five to 10 years, the Arctic will be free of ice in the summer. Then just a year later, you have probably one of the most famous predictions that have been made. USA Today, citing the former US Vice President, Mr. Al Gore, they wrote this, quote, the Arctic Ocean may be nearly ice-free in the summer as early as 2014. And again, these predictions just kept snowballing, no pun intended. In summer of 2012, the Australian wrote this, quote, enjoy snow now, by 2020, it'll be gone. In July of 2013, you had The Guardian, quote, ice-free Arctic in two years heralds methane catastrophe, says a scientist. Then in August of 2017, you had the Sydney Morning Herald, quote, snowy retreat, climate change puts Australia's ski industry on a downhill slope. For the last one, by the way, the weather data shows that over in Australia, it's been snowing quite as usual in recent years. Then we get to January of 2018, and this was when a Forbes article citing a Harvard University professor wrote this, quote, the chance that there will be any permanent ice left in the Arctic after the year 2022 is essentially zero. For your reference, even though the odds were against it, at this very moment, there is about 5.6 million square miles of Arctic sea ice. Then in June of 2018, Ms. Greta Thunberg, the young climate activist, she shared a story on Twitter, which was titled this, quote, Top climate scientist says humans will go extinct if we don't fix climate change by 2023. To which Greta added this, quote, A top climate scientist is warning that climate change will wipe out all of humanity unless we stop using fossil fuels over the next five years. Now, for some odd reason, Greta decided to delete that particular tweet earlier this year. And she was not the only one that had to delete her earlier prediction. That's because in January of 2020, Glacier National Park had to remove one of their signs because that sign claimed that all the glaciers would be melted away by the year 2020, which would be an awkward thing to read in the year 2020 when you can still see the glacier in the background. Then in December of 2021, the LA Times ran a story with this headline, quote, a no snow California could come sooner than you think. Interestingly enough, a few weeks after this article was published, researchers over at UC Berkeley announced that California actually had the snowiest December on record. Regardless though, a year later in August of 2022, Bloomberg reported this, quote, the end of snow threatens to upend 76 million American lives. However, it's worth noting that just a few months later, the Sierra Nevada mountains saw their second snowiest winter on record. And then of course, right now, right at this moment, California is getting blasted with a bomb cyclone with record levels of snow coming down quite literally as we speak. Which all brings us neatly back to the doomsday clock over in Union Square, which claims that we only have a few years left. And you know what? This time, they might be right. Like the boy who cried wolf too many times, well, this time it might really be the end. However, in a more realistic assessment, after going through this entire list of 33 predictions, which didn't quite pan out, it seems like these climate predictionists are shooting themselves in the foot. Because instead of just presenting the data and the research that they were able to pull together and explaining to the people, explaining to the public at large their findings in a rational and clear way, it seems like instead they just insist on continuing to issue these predictions one after the other. And these predictions, after they fail to materialize, well, they lead more and more people to trust these so-called climate scientists less and less. Perhaps that would explain why it's mostly young people at these climate protests. Since they haven't lived through the past 50 years of these predictions, they perhaps assume that this latest prediction is the only one, and therefore it must be right. Now again, I am not anything close to a climate expert or a climate scientist, and as to the question of whether there is indeed a climate crisis or not, well, you can decide that for yourself after looking into the data. I'm only pointing out the fact that if you look at all these predictions that were promulgated by the media, and if you took them seriously over the past 50 years, you would have been not only stressed out, but you would have also been wrong. 
If you'd like to go through any of the links and articles that we presented in today's episode, which by the way, was only a small representative sample because there are quite literally hundreds of these types of articles. Regardless though, if you'd like to go through the ones that we presented, I'll throw them all down into the description box below. Actually, I'll throw one link and when you go to that link, all of them will be listed out there. They'll be down in the description box below. And then until next time, I'm your host, Roman from the Epic Times. Stay informed and most importantly, stay free. Thank <laughs> you.